right, thank you, Richie. Oh, he's risen. Amen. It's one of my favorite things to do on Easter Sunday. Ask people that, and you know, you've maybe heard me asking you, and you're like, "What is he saying?" And now you know. So for next year, you know, remember, uh, that's the response. He is risen indeed, and uh, it is such a, a joy to gather every Sunday, especially on this Sunday, to uh, look at the great hope that we have. Our hope is in a person, in the risen person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive today. Uh, it's great to be with you, study God's word. We have a, a great text uh, before us this morning as we take a little break from our study in the Gospel of Luke. So come back next week. We'll be back in Luke chapter 4, Lord willing, and continue the public ministry of Jesus. But for this morning, we're going to look at a great Resurrection Sunday text. Uh, the whole chapter, chapter 15, is about resurrection. Uh, the resurrection of Christ is the basis for our future resurrection. So that's what we want to look at this morning as we celebrate the good news, the gospel, the good news that Jesus has been raised to show that he has, in fact, dealt with sin and the greatest suffering of death. So let us read the text. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read all the way to verse 11, uh, even though we'll be just looking at really the first um, part of this section. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of God. Well, there's truly no one like him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we come to worship the triune God whom we have come to know through the person of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit's work. And, of course, the Spirit has revealed these things to us on the, in the pages of Scripture. He is the one man who has split time, as we even designate uh, history based upon the coming of this man. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. 
course, some have sought to change that uh, as of lately in recent uh, decades. Uh, but yet, this stands as the man who makes us divide time based on his coming because his life is the most significant life and his work is the most significant work that has ever been accomplished. And at the culminating point of that is his resurrection from the dead. We have two great problems that we encounter. The problem of sin and the problem of suffering. All of us are sinners and all of us are sufferers. Things have come into our lives to bring suffering and ultimately the greatest suffering is death. And all of us are sinners. We are born in Adam, our great, great uh, forefather. And we are guilty because of Adam's sin which has been reckoned to us. And we also inherit a bent nature that loves sin. It loves everything else but obedience to God in what God would say. And so this is our problem. We are sufferers, we are sinners. And Christ has come to address both of those. He has come to address our suffering. He has come to deal with death, to remove the sting of death and the fear of death in our lives so that we can face death with hope. Hope in a person, not an abstract hope, but hope in a risen man who has conquered death as the first fruits for those who would follow after him in faith in him that they might be resurrected as well. And he has dealt with sin by bearing the wrath of God for sinners on the cross and then being validated by the Father and the Spirit and raising himself from the dead to show that he is who he claimed to be and he has accomplished what he set out to accomplish, namely the victory of saving a people for himself and to give to the Father as given to him by the Father and for him to have and call brothers. And so this is what he has come to do. He has come to deal with our sin and our suffering. The gospel is good news. That's what it means. It means good news. And Paul is so excited about this news that the way he says it, he says, the gospel I preach to you, and usually the word preach is a word for like a herald, a, a town crier who comes into a city and has a message from a king, and that is certainly true, but this word is a word that Paul uses that's virtually the same as the word gospel. It's like Paul says, the gospel I gospeled to you. Paul not only has a message that is objectively good news, but the manner in which he delivers it is joyful. He has this, this tone of, as he preaches. It's like he's smiling as he delivers this good news that Jesus Christ has come to deal with your sin and suffering. Praise God, good news. I mean, how do you respond when you hear good news? It's a boy, it's a girl. <laughs> she said yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so you, you can think, you know, you got the job and you are excited. You can see it on your face. You know, Spurgeon said, to preachers, up and coming preachers, when you speak about the glories of heaven, let your face beam like the sun in all of its glory. And when you speak about hell, your normal face will do. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we should match the, the tone of our uh, voice and the tone and the, and the tenor of our, uh, of our manner to the message that's being proclaimed. And so Paul does that. He has a great message to bring. You know, the gospel message is not just to save us, 
but it's to sanctify us. The Bible addresses the problems that we face in life, the challenges we face, problems like fear, problems like uh, lust and uh, wrong desires, problems like depression, problems like interpersonal conflict, forgiveness, abuse, all kinds of issues that the world seeks to address as well, but the Bible addresses these also. Now, the, the greatest need we have is forgiveness of sins before a holy God, but God doesn't stop there. He continues to work in our lives to change us, sanctify us, and help us to think through the issues that we face in life and to interpret them according to the way God would have us. You know, it's, it's interesting that Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, started his practice on Easter Sunday. I don't know if anyone showed up that first Sunday, but it was intentional to say, I'm offering a different way to handle your problems than what has been offered to you in the past. You know, where was the world before Sigmund Freud? Well, look at the Puritans. They were experts at soul care and applying the word of God to the problems that people faced in profound and not simplistic, but deep and lasting ways to produce change. Freud was offering an alternative that denied God and was seeking to make up in his own image what the ideal person should look like and address them. And yet the Bible tells us what the ideal person should be like, the image of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of God. He is the one whom we are being conformed into his image. And so, wherever you are, know the Bible gives you hope for change. And that hope comes in the gospel. And that is what we want to look at this morning. Paul writes 1 Corinthians to a church that has a lot of problems. They are asking questions. They have different sins that they need to be addressed, and Paul is writing to address them. But as he gets to chapter 15, he spends this entire chapter addressing the question of resurrection. There were some who were denying the resurrection. And so he addresses that. And really, he speaks to the historical reality of Christ's resurrection to then establish the fact that we as well will be resurrected as Christians. We will have new bodies to live on a new earth that God will restore so that we might enjoy life with him, the triune God for eternity. The hope of the Christian is not to go off to some other realm, but it's ultimately to be here on this earth, restored in a body on the earth to enjoy the triune God. So, Paul addresses those things, but as he begins, he highlights the gospel message, the gospel message that he had received from God and he delivered to them. And so we want to look at three vital rem reminders concerning the gospel. Three vital reminders concerning the gospel. The first reminder is that the gospel dramatically changes people. The gospel dramatically changes people. Verses 1 and 2. Look at what he says there in verse one. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice that who, to whom Paul is writing. I would remind you, brothers, and this is a term that can be brothers and sisters. It's a shorthand for both. And so he is 
uh, using a, a phrase, a term, a familial term that is a way that Paul refers to Christians, fellow Christians in the family of God, people who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And he says, brothers, so he's addressing believers and he's reminding them of the gospel. And you think, why is that significant? Well, because believers in Christ need to be reminded of the gospel. It's not a one and done thing. It's not a hear the gospel, respond, and then you can forget about it. No, the gospel is central to the Christian's life from beginning to end. In fact, Paul does the same exact thing in the Roman letter where he writes to the Romans and he says to them in chapter one, verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he's writing largely to believers. He wants to speak the good news. This shows us the gospel is not only for evangelism, reaching those who are outside of Christ, but also for discipleship. We never get over the gospel. Therefore, you need to be reminded of the gospel. As a believer, the gospel shapes your identity, how you think about yourself. It reminds you to forgive others as you have been forgiven. It contributes to a view of yourself that is humble. It humbles you before God and others. It makes you more gracious because of the grace that you have been shown by God. It helps you to not despair because if God can do the hardest thing, deal with your sin, then surely he can meet all of your other needs. It reminds you that on your best day, God doesn't love you any more, and on your worst day, God does not love you any less. It helps you to suffer well, gives you hope. There's not an issue we will face to which the gospel is not the answer. The gospel is not just for Sunday, it is for every day. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book, Spiritual Depression, that we should be in the habit of not uh, just listening to ourselves, but speaking to ourselves. What does he mean by that? He means we need to not just let the, the track run in our minds of the things that, we're, that are coming into our heads, but we need to discipline our minds to have beliefs that are actually in line with the gospel, desires that harmonize with what God would have us, and commitments that would be in line with what God would have us. And so when your, your mind starts to worry and fret about various things that you want to be able to control, or you get angry at someone because they are uh, interrupting your standard of justice, not God's standard of justice, but your standard of justice, and you're, you want to get upset at them and punish them because they've stepped onto your kingdom and, and they've broken the rules of your kingdom, and you remind yourself, wait a minute, I am not the king, God is the king. God is the sovereign, that is the gospel, and his law is what is most important, not my personal law. And so then it helps you to speak the truth. What am I wanting so much right now? What are my desires of my heart that is leading me to punish this person because of what they have just done to me? And, and it makes you think about my desires are to be aligned with God's desires. James says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, your desires that rage within you? And so he's saying the issue is your desires and the gospel comes in and says, don't just allow your heart to be pulled along by these various desires, but speak to your heart and tell your heart what your desires should be. That is speaking the gospel to yourself. That's what Jerry Bridges calls preaching the gospel to yourself. It means consciously identifying the main beliefs influencing your thinking and renewing those to be more in line with gospel truth. 
It means seeking to orient your desires around God's desires for you. It means seeking to reorient your commitments to be those which God prizes. It means seeking to interpret your circumstances in light of the reality of the standpoint of the gospel. It means to seek to have the most significant influences and voices in your life to be those which encourage thinking and values in line with the gospel. And it means perceiving yourself and your relationship with God in view of what the gospel says about you and what the gospel says about God. And so this is how relevant the gospel is. Now you say, I'm not even sure where to start with some of those things. Well, start with your speech. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your mouth, your talk reveals the things that you value most, that you desire most, that you believe fundamentally, and that you want, and that you're committed to. And so start there, and then begin to say, what does the Bible say about these things? What does the Bible say about these issues? So the gospel is very relevant continually for the Christian life, and therefore we need to be reminded of the gospel truth. Yes, of course, Paul is summarizing succinctly death, burial, resurrection, but those are just files that you open up, and there is a lot in there. So don't think simplistically, but think about the depth and breadth of the gospel realities that we need to apply to our lives. Christ's resurrection addresses our sin and our suffering, and so how relevant it is for our lives. So, Paul comes to remind them of the gospels, to, to remind believers of the gospel, excuse me. <laughs> so you need to remember the gospel as a Christian. But if you're not a Christian, you need to receive the gospel. You must receive the gospel. Look what he says. Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. You must receive the gospel. This idea of receiving, it's, it's parallel with the idea of believing in verse 2. What does Paul mean by receiving the gospel? Well, the idea is to welcome in a guest. First of all, it doesn't mean that you work to receive the gospel. It's not a cleaning up your life for Jesus before he becomes a guest. It is a gift from God. It's not something a person is able to work for, to earn. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Receiving the gospel speaks of having faith in Christ, trust in the person and work of Christ. Uh, John, uh, in chapter one of his gospel, he says it this way about receiving Jesus. John chapter one, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So receive Jesus. What is, receive him for who he is. Well, who is he? Who does the Bible say Jesus is? He is truly God. He is truly man. He is the Savior. He is Lord, sovereign, king. He is the treasure hidden in the field. Receive him as that. This receiving means more than just believing facts, though, about the gospel. Affirming the presidency of George Washington, the first president of the United States, does not make you an American. <laughs> and affirming the facts of the gospel does not make you a Christian. Even the demons believe those facts, and yet demon faith is not saving faith. And so there is a difference between simply knowing truths about the gospel and saying, yeah, I think those happened, and actually entrusting yourself to Christ. 
Steve Lawson says this, you're not saved by knowing the plan of salvation, but the man of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can know the plan without knowing the man. This is eternal life, that they know you. Yes, you have to know the plan. You have to know how to be saved to know Christ, but knowing the plan does not mean you are saved. One writer said, true faith or trust in Christ means to count or rely completely on what Christ has done in his death and resurrection for my sin so that my hope of being right in God's sight is all because of Christ and has nothing to do with any good thing I might ever say or do. We might say as well, to receive Christ means to release your sin. It means to repent, to acknowledge your sin before God, to call a spade a spade, to call sin, sin, to not redefine your sin as acceptable before God. The world would love to do that and say that things that are genuinely and truly in God's eyes sin are not sin. And in fact, they should be affirmed. But no, we cannot do that because you cut yourself off from God's grace. Acknowledge the problem, hate your sin, and turn from it. Not, not a clean your life up, but acknowledge it and, and say, God, I, I see the problem. I turn from this sin. Help me. And I come to Christ. It is a resting upon Christ as you depend upon him. Listen, Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Let me ask you this. Have you received Jesus as Savior, as, as Lord, as treasure? Is he is he yours by faith? Have you released your sin to come to him? Paul says you must. You must if you are to be saved from your sin. The salvation. And so not only do we need to be reminded of the gospel, we need to receive the gospel, but we must also remain in the gospel. We must remain in the gospel. Verse two, by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. The stand is a stand on the truth. It speaks of a sincere commitment to the gospel message, a resting upon the work of Christ, not your own. This reminds me of the passage in Matthew 7. Jesus says, the man who built his house on the rock versus on the sand, a stable foundation. And when the storm come, came, the, the, the house stood because it was on a good foundation. The hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You know, we're called believers because we continue to believe, right? We, we, we believe in Christ, we trust in him, and we continue to rely upon him through our lives. We continue to remember that it's not by our works that we're accepted before God, but it's by his works. And so we continue to rely upon that. Notice that what Paul says, though, in verses one and two, the gospel by which you are being saved what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be? Well, the word is like delivered, to be delivered, to be rescued, all right? Peter in the water as he's sinking, as he is on the water, as he's uh, walked out to meet Jesus on the water there, and then he begins to sink. Lord, save me, rescue me, deliver me. That's this idea in a physical, tangible deliverance. But from, from what does the Bible say we need to be saved? Is it a, a lack of purpose in your life that you need to be saved from? A lack of significance in your life that you need to be saved from? Lack of self-esteem 
that you need to be saved from? A lack, a lack of, uh, is it a life of pain and sadness and trouble you need to be saved from? Of course, the Bible will address those things, but, but the Bible would say fundamentally, the Bible would say that you need to be saved from your sin, from your guilt. In fact, the Bible says as much. Jesus came to save us, save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, 21. Romans 5, verse 9 says we need to be saved from the wrath of God, God's just anger towards our sin. You need to be saved from hell. It is the gospel by which you are saved. Now notice that he says here, by which you are being saved. This indicates an ongoing process. Now when the Bible speaks to our salvation, there are different aspects to this. So there's, an, there's the initial side, the progressive side, and a completed side. So you think initially we call this justification. And what this means is that when you place your trust in Christ, you rest upon him, you depend upon him, God declares you to be righteous in his sight. Like a judge would say, not guilty. Uh, you can go free, but it's better than not guilty. It is righteous. It's as if the judge is saying, wow, we just looked at the records and you've obeyed every law for your whole life. <laughs> Uh, because Jesus has obeyed on your behalf. And so that's justification. We contribute nothing to this. We, 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 uh, in fact, we don't contribute anything to the whole of our salvation. It is all of grace, all of God. But in justification, uh, God is imputing, he is crediting to us righteousness that is not our own because we simply trust in Christ. Then there's this aspect of sanctification, which often is used in the sense of this progress. God saves us, and then he begins to transform our lives. He begins to change our wrong beliefs, our wrong desires, our wrong commitments, and conform them more to what he would have us believe, to desire, and to be committed to in his word. And that is a a growth where we become more and more like Christ. And that's this progressive idea. That's what he's saying here. You're, you're being saved. You're being sanctified by this, having been justified. And then finally, on that last day, when he returns, we will be glorified. We will be saved. So you can legitimately say in Scripture that I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And we have to distinguish those carefully. And, uh, and yet, this initial aspect of justification is the basis and ground of the rest of it. But notice then, having that logic in your mind, how he, he reasons out. He says, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And what does he mean by if? Why would he say if? Well, see, Paul understands the sad reality that there are some professors of faith in Christ who are not truly possessors of Christ, such that they claim to be Christians, and yet they don't actually possess genuine faith. 1 John 2, 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they are not all of us. And not all faith is saving. Jesus said to his disciples, to the Jews who had believed in him, in John 8, 31, If you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. He's not saying that you, you know, you're saved by uh, grace and kept by works, not at all. But he's saying the, the true evidence that God has done a work of change in your life is fruit, fruit on the tree, and, and a remaining in Christ. The Bible promises to the Christian that those whom God saves, he keeps till the end. He ensures that they make it. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So what Paul is saying is, 
If you continue, continue to believe, continue to trust, continue to be a believer, continue to trust in him. And those who have walked away, those who have left, it's shown that they believed in vain. It was an empty faith. That's what that shows if they no longer walk with Christ. The gospel dramatically changes people. I mean, even in this chapter, the Corinthians, well, even in this book, the Corinthians are an example of this. People who had been enslaved to sin and God has saved them. He had worked in their lives. In fact, he addresses them in chapter one, verse two. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, that's this idea of like a, that pos- positional, that initial setting apart, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He calls them saints. I mean, these are, this is a messed up church. And he's saying, you guys are saints. This is how God views you. This is how you should think of yourself. And then he ends, uh, or he, he, in 1 Corinthians 6, he speaks about uh, all these various sins that once characterized them, only to give them encouragement about how God has worked to transform their lives. Look at what he says, the ways God has transformed them through the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The gospel changes people. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, thought he was out of his mind during his life. So much so that when Jesus is going to entrust the care of his earthly mother to someone, he doesn't say anything about his half-brother James. He says, John, the disciple, his friend, you take care of my mother. Behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. But then after the resurrection, Jesus specially appears to his half-brother James, and James is converted. He becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, we see that. He was radically transformed. In fact, verse 7 of chapter 15, then he appeared to James. It's a special note, how he transformed him. Or think about the apostle Paul. This guy is going, he is holding the coats for people as they stone Stephen, one of the early preachers of the church. And they're killing him, and it's, he's probably presiding over this. And they're laying their feet at the, uh, laying their coats at the feet of, of Saul. Paul's then tracking down Christians to imprison them and to persecute them violently. And then the risen Christ appears to him and changes him in a dramatic fashion. And you ever think like, I don't know if God can forgive this particular sin I did, and no one knows about it. It's like really bad. I would just be horrified if someone knew about it. Guess what? God forgave Paul, the persecutor of Christians. He can forgive you. And Paul actually said, God, God used me as an example to show his patience towards sinners. That if he could save me, he could save you. And so the gospel powerfully changes people's lives. Such, so much so that Paul changed his name. His name was changed from Saul to Paul because of how dramatic this change was. And so the gospel changes people. The gospel dramatically changes people. Secondly, the gospel deserves central place. The gospel deserves central place. 
Look at verse three, just the beginning. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First importance. The most important thing. This is the priority of the gospel. I think it was Al Mohler um, who first used the term theological triage. You go to the hospital before and they have a triage section. They have to decide who needs to be seen first, right? You've got you know, this person who has a hangnail and they're complaining and they have a person who has a gunshot wound. And it's like, okay, let's see the gunshot victim first before, you know, the hangnail, right? I know that that's an incredible, silly, silly illustration, but you understand the point. Um, and they're gonna see the person who they believe needs to be addressed first, of first importance. And we could say that too about while everything is important in scripture, there are certain things that are of first importance. This is a category that the scriptures give us. And Paul is saying that the gospel is of first importance. It is most important. Now, why would that be? Well, if you were to think about a few categories of triage, you would have the first level issues of first importance. These are things that if you don't get these right, you go to hell. You face God's wrath forever. And so if you get the person of Christ wrong, you get the work of Christ wrong, like for instance, if you say Jesus wasn't truly God or truly man, you have the wrong Jesus. If you deny his righteous life, his perfect life, his sinless life, you have a different Jesus. If you deny the sufficiency of his work, that you need to add to what Christ has done by your good works or your penance or your uh, anything else, you have a different gospel. And so whatever it is, you deny the resurrection, whatever it may be, if you get these things wrong, you have a different gospel. Second priority things would be things that would probably distinguish different Christian denominations. Things like who should be baptized, how the church should be governed. And of course, we can look at other brothers who disagree with us and sisters and say, I love them. We're gospel partners because we believe the same gospel message. And yet, say, it would be hard to plant a church with them. It would be hard to be in the same church because we view the makeup of the church differently. And of course, those are intramural things, but they're of significance. They're gonna have big impact. And then maybe with third priority, we could debate about what these should be, but maybe areas where in the same church, we may have different views on certain things and wrestle through those things. But Paul is saying, of first importance is the gospel. You've got to get the gospel right. I asked our kids the other day, if the house caught on fire, what one thing would you want to grab and, and get out of the house uh, before you left? And of course, we, we thought of all these different things and um, Ashley said, the computer, because all the pictures of our kids are on there. And uh, I was like, we have the cloud, right? It's backed up on the cloud. She's like, oh yeah, that's right, you know. But is it really, are they really all backed up? You know, we don't lose those baby pictures, you know. We get it, there's things of first importance. Now, think about it this way. If the gospel is of first importance, ask yourself, how do you talk about things that are of most importance to you, of greatest importance to you, of greatest value to you? What you talk about most and think about most indicates what you actually think is most important. Now, we have to have a category because this is just true for our lives. We often have a formal theology and a functional theology. What I mean by that is we know what we should say. We know what we're supposed to say, formal theology, but functionally we ebb and flow. 
Sometimes that's not true of us, but that is, the, that is the fight of faith where we're seeking to align our functional, lived out theology with what we confess and profess formally. And so if we say this is of utmost importance and yet we never talk about it with our spouses, with our kids, with our friends, the gospel never is on our lips, then that would question whether our formal theology is the same as our functional theology. And of course, all of us struggle in this way, no doubt. This is why we need the gospel after all. But it is this that we should see as first importance. And it's also why we, we seek to proclaim the gospel every week here and make the gospel known because it is of first importance and to explain the depth of it for our lives. So the gospel deserves central place. Central place in the church life and central, central place in our personal lives as well. Finally, third and finally, gospel truth. The gospel declares Christ's person and work. The gospel declares Christ's person and work. Paul says in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. It's at this point we see the Christ-centered nature of the gospel message. The gospel is not a plan, it is a person. The gospel is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is not being reductionistic here, we, we ought not to ask, like, what's the minimal we should communicate to someone about the gospel? Um, we should be thinking, how much, time can I, how much time do I have to communicate as much as I can about the person of Christ? He's simplifying and being succinct here. Like we said before, it's like he gives us folders. Like in your computer, you double-click and open up a folder, and there's either stuff in there or there's stuff not, that, that's not in there. These are, these are folders, these four words, died, buried, raised, appeared that you open up and there is a lot in there. You don't get to fill in these files for how you want to define them. They're defined for you by the writers of Scripture. And so Paul is, is summarizing the gospel. He does this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't forget the resurrection. He means Jesus Christ, his person, who he is, and him crucified, a summary for his work. Don't forget the resurrection as you proclaim the gospel. Now, these four words succinctly summarize the gospel message, that it's about the person and work of Christ. Notice that Jesus died, number one, as a substitute for sinners. Christ died for our sins. Now, sometimes I think we, we assume too much about what people understand about these terms. Christ, Jesus, sin, <laughs> repentance, faith, you know, uh, died, even resurrected. So we, we often have to define our terms. Who is Jesus? Who are we talking about? So many pretenders uh, out there in the sense of false views of Christ. Here's a good place to start, at least, in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into their district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As we said, you have to have the right Jesus, the truly God, truly man, sinless life, righteous Christ. What did Jesus do? What did Christ do? The God-man, he died for our sins. For our sins. Really, the important word here is for. For. It defines what his death meant. Now, you can say he died. That's speaking to the historical reality. But what do you understand his death to have accomplished? For. It means, the word for means in the place of, on behalf of, for the benefit of. It speaks to this understanding of substitution, one in the place of another. And so here, the death of Christ is understood to be in the place of sinners for our sins. This is such a huge theme, but just one place. First, uh, Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 53 speaks this way as he predicts the sufferings of Messiah on behalf of his people, bearing their sin in their place, bearing the wrath of God. Colin Hansen writes this about a hymn committee. Uh, he says, quote, a hymn committee with the Presbyterian Church USA wanted to add the song in Christ alone to their new hymnal, Glory to God, released in 2013. But in doing so, the committee requested permission from the song's writers, Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty, to print an altered version of the hymn's lyrics, changing, quote, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, end quote, to, quote, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified, end quote. The songwriters rejected the proposed change, and as a result, the hymn committee voted to bar the hymn. Now, many of you, I think, are familiar with that story, but this is why it's so important to define what we mean by died for our sins. Jesus bears the wrath of God for sinners on the cross. The anger and the fury of God's justice against sinners who've broken his law is poured out upon the Son. He goes voluntarily to bear the wrath to win this people. Now, this is a hated doctrine. Uh, people want to fill in the blanks with, uh, fill, fill in these folders rather, with their definition of what for means. And yet we don't have the right to do that. John Stott says, There is no true proclamation of the gospel which does not explain the link between human sin and the death of Christ. This is the good news cannot be good news without the bad news. Sin must be understood properly by the sinner and what Christ has accomplished. But let me tell you why this is good news. I know you have guilt if you're not in Christ. Why do you have guilt? Because you're guilty. <laughs> That's why. I mean, the world might say, you should do this to get rid of your guilt or do that to get rid of your guilt. The Bible actually can deal with your guilt because Christ can deal with your guilt because he's borne the wrath of God for guilty sinners so that by trusting in him, that guilt is no longer there. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. And so this is, what it, this is why it's good news for us. He bore the wrath that we deserved. What is sin? Well, London Baptist Confession, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Fundamentally, we could say sin is preferring anything 
some, uh, preferring something more than God, preferring anything more than God. It is a preference, forsaking God, the fountain of living waters, and hewing out cisterns for yourself, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Paul in Romans 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they preferred created things rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. We all seek happiness, but it's only in the one who is the blessed God, the happy God, where we can find happiness. The reason we all seek happiness in some form or another, even if it's misguided, is because we are in the image of the blessed God, who formally and fundamentally is, in his very essence and nature, blessed. He is in the state of divine blessedness. And so it would make sense that we would seek out such joy and happiness. And yet, the only way to truly know that is by knowing the blessed one through his son and by his spirit. And so when it says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore, people are seeking out their joy and satisfaction in those things which cannot ultimately bring them blessing and satisfaction and joy, but rather will destroy them. It will destroy them in the end. If you've sinned only one time, you're guilty before God. You, you've broken the pain glass window and the whole thing must be replaced. The problem is we cannot pay for our own sins and we cannot make up for the evil we've done and we can't earn the righteousness that we need. Imagine being pulled over by a police officer and the, and the officer says, you, you've, you know, what's the problem, officer? Well, you ran a red light. And you say, well, officer, I understand that, but I just want you to know, I have stopped at every red light up to this point my whole life. <laughs> I don't think that's gonna work. <laughs> not only that, but that's probably not true, and uh, it's certainly not true with God's law. Appealing to our past or other things or comparing ourselves with other people will not do. God's law, in part, reveals God's character, but it also reveals our sin, and it shows us like a mirror, like looking in the mirror, who we really are, what we really look like, the standard of God, and how we fall short. And so this is why Christ has died, as a substitute for sinners who deserve God's wrath. This has always been God's plan. Christ died according to the scriptures. This is what the, the Bible predicted. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament, all those animals pointed forward to Christ, and not only that, many texts predict the sufferings and glories of the Messiah. So Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. Second, Jesus was buried as proof of his death. It says that he was buried. And this may seem odd to you, like why is Jesus' burial so important to include? Well, notice how his death is then confirmed by his burial, and then his resurrection, we'll see, is confirmed by his appearing. And so these go hand in hand in the way he structures it here. His, his burial proves that he actually died. He was, in fact, dead. Acts 2, 29, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's died, he's buried. He actually died. And it's amazing, Isaiah predicts his, his burial and the unique providence of it 700 years before Jesus was born. Go read Isaiah 53, 7 to 9, and see how he, though he was condemned as a criminal, he was to be buried with the wicked. And yet, in a feat of providence, he's buried in the rich man's tomb. How, how could that work out? Well, Joseph of Arimathea comes along, and he allows him to be buried in his tomb. And so his burial confirms his death. And then Jesus, third, was raised to validate his person and his work. Raised to validate his person, his work, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
The teaching of the resurrection was one of the hallmarks of the early church. You read through Acts and you'll see time and again their message is they are proclaiming the hope of resurrection. Church began to meet on Sundays, the first day of the week, because it was the day the Lord rose. They called it the Lord's Day. Now, here, here's what, how I want you to think about the resurrection in part. And I, hopefully this will, I've said this before, but maybe you haven't heard this yet. And so think about the resurrection like a receipt. And if you go to Sam's Club or Costco, if you're in Jacksonville uh, or Tallahassee, and they, they make you show your receipt before you go out. It's like, this store doesn't trust you. You know, every other store, you know, you throw it away. <laughs> you know, do you want your receipt, they ask you. But no, they, they give you a receipt at these stores and they make you show before you leave and they kind of like, mm, you know, and they, that person does it for you. And then you get to leave, right? What are they doing? They're, they want to see proof that the things that you have in your cart are what you've paid for. And so the receipt has a form of validating that you have actually purchased, that, that the store has accepted your payment and these are your things now. And in a way, that's what the resurrection does. It has a way of validating both the person and the work of Christ, of saying, you know, when Jesus died on the cross to, he, to bear the wrath of God, did God receive that? Did God accept that? How do we know that that transaction went through? You know, I don't know if you've ever used the, what is this, RDIF, or I don't know if that's right, the chip on your, in, on your card. Uh, and, you, and sometimes it's like you, you could just hold it over. Maybe you have a phone thing. And sometimes it doesn't work. And this is like payment not received. And you're like, ah, oh, so you got to push it in. And then they're like, oh, it didn't work again. So they give it to them and they punch in the numbers. And so it doesn't read sometimes. How do we know that, the, that it read? How do we know that it went through? Transaction process and accepted because the resurrection. That's how we know. Because God didn't leave him dead. He rose him from the grave. And it validates his person and his work, who he claimed to be and what he accomplished. Two passages in Romans. Romans chapter one, verse four. Listen to what Paul says. That Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's declared, he was always the son of God, but in a special way, he's declared, this is the son of God because God raised him from the dead. And then chapter four, verse 25, we read this about his work. It, was count, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification so that we could be declared righteous. How do we know we can be righteous in God's sight? God raised him from the dead. The receipt proves it. We have the receipt of the resurrection. Romans 10, 9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We must rely upon this Christ and what he has done. A bodily resurrection is essential for the Christian faith. And this is what the Old Testament predicted. This was nothing new. He says it was according to the scriptures. Psalm 16, verse 10, speaks about the Messiah's resurrection. You will not allow your Holy One to see decay, as we read. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, speak about the Messiah alive after his death. Psalm 22, 21 and 22, also speak of the Messiah alive and working after his death. The sign of Jonah that Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights. Or it, it, Jonah's in the, the belly of the fish, the son of man in the heart of the earth. And so this is the sign that just as Jonah was validated as a prophet by 
his having a death-like experience and a resurrection-like experience, Jesus will be validated even more so by having an actual death and an actual resurrection. And then Hosea 6.2 speaks about how God will raise Israel on the third day in, re- in repentance and restoration. And Israel is often seen in solidarity with the ultimate Israelite, Jesus. But Jesus himself predicted many times that he would be raised on the third day, and then he confirmed it. This is a triune work of God. The Father raised Jesus from the dead, the Son raises himself, and the Spirit raises him as well. It is not three resurrections, but one resurrection of the triune God. And then Jesus appears as proof of his resurrection, and which is what the rest of this big section talks about as he continues to appear to these various people over the course of a 40-day period. This phrase, he appeared, occurs uh, many times. And during that post-resurrection appearance, he, he did things like eating, drinking, he was touched, he had a real body, giving us a picture of what our resurrection bodies will be like. Do you want to have a great testimony? You know, people share their testimony, how they came to faith in Christ. Don't talk a lot about yourself. Talk much about Christ. Talk much about what Christ has done, not so much about you. Don't make yourself the object of your testimony because you don't want you to be the object of people's trust. You want to talk much about the object of Christ. Talk about him. You want people to walk away having him as the object of their faith. The gospel dramatically changes people. It deserves central place because it declares Christ's person and his work. This is the gospel that we preach. It's been said, to be almost saved is to be totally lost. So, have you received Christ? Have you trusted in him? He is the only hope. The world has many other offers for you on how to deal with your problems and even what your greatest problem might be. The Bible is alone gonna define for you accurately who you are as a person, what has gone wrong, who God is, and how you can be made right with him. And we preach Christ as Paul did. I wanna conclude by reading a, a, a kind of a, a creedal statement that was written in the last 10 years to speak about Christ and exalt him, that we might just worship him as we prepare to sing this final uh, hymn. It says, it's called We Preach Christ. As we preach Christ, who is the eternal son, one in nature with the eternal father and the eternal spirit, the triune God, who is the creator and life giver, as well as the sustainer of the universe and all who live in it, who is the virgin-born Son of God and Son of Man, fully divine, fully human, who is the one whose life on earth perfectly pleased God and whose righteousness is given to all who by grace through faith become one with him, who is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin that pleases God and whose death under divine judgment paid in full the penalty of the sins of his people, providing for them forgiveness and eternal life who is alive, having been raised from the dead by the Father, validating his work of atonement and providing resurrection for the sanctification and glorification of the elect to bring them safely into his heavenly presence, who is at the Father's throne interceding for all believers, who is God's chosen prophet, priest, and king, proclaiming truth, mediating for his church and reigning over his kingdom forever 
who will suddenly return from heaven to rapture his church, unleash judgment on the wicked, bring promise, salvation to the, to the Jews and the nations, and establish his millennial reign on earth, who will after that earthly reign destroy the universe, finally judge all sinners and send them to hell, then create the new heavens and the new earth where he will dwell forever with his saints in glory, love, and joy. This is the Christ we preach. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, thank you for sending your son and for your spirit's empowering of him and this great triune work to enact salvation, to address our greatest problem, our sin against you, which we justly deserve your judgment for. And yet you have sent your son, and he has perfectly obeyed. He has died in our place, and he's been raised victoriously. And so in union with him, we've died with him, we've been raised with him, and we await that resurrection of our bodies as well. But we stand today confident of your love for us and of the satisfaction of your wrath that you are not angry with us because we are in Christ, we are accepted in the beloved, and we are now beloved having been in him. We thank you for this great reality that you address our sin and our suffering. Lord, in our sufferings right now, Lord, across this room, would you minister hope, hope in a person that you are ruling this world as sovereign and that you can defeat death and will do so and that all your plans are good and wise. And Lord, would you deal with our individual sins as we come to you yet again for cleansing. And Lord, draw to yourself, your people, that they would find Christ so delightful that they would have to have him today and release their sin, resting upon him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.